It is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. If you have a copy of the Bible with you, turn with me to John chapter 14. I have Uncle Paul's stopwatch with me this morning for two reasons. I used to lay my phone up here and it went off while I was preaching a funeral a couple years ago, so I'm against the cell phone up here. And then also, the Lord has had me in a time of rest from teaching and preaching for a while, and so there's a very real danger that I could preach till 3.30. And I didn't see any lunches. Our focal text this morning will be John chapter 14 and verse 1. For the sake of context, I will be reading chapter 13 in its entirety and and then ending in verse 6 of chapter 14. Before we get started, I want to thank the church and the elders for trusting me to stand in this place. It is, in my mind, both a privilege and a great responsibility, and it's one I do not take lightly. Looking along with me at chapter 13 of verse 1, if you're ready for the scripture, say amen. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and returned to his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should, should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know who I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread was has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, afterward, receiving, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not, where, we do not know where, where you are going. How then can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Father, Lord, we come before you as a church, as a body of believers, your saints, made clean by the work that the Lord Jesus has done on the cross. Lord, I pray that you'd glorify yourself. I thank you, God, for your word. I thank you for, you know, Lord, at one time I, I, I always thought that I was born at the wrong time. I thought I was an old soul and and that I was born wrong, and that somehow there had been some mistake made. 
But I'm thankful today, Lord, as I stand here, that you and your sovereignty put me in Marlow, Oklahoma in 1974. And that I stand here with this group of people today. Father, glorify your own self. I pray just like my brother David prayed this, this day that I would decrease and that you would increase. Lord, if there be any among us who don't know you, I pray that you would make this word come alive to them, that you'd open their eyes the way that you did me in 1997. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The thing about this scripture in chapter 14 and verse 1, uh, you know, I have always... I have always used the word transparent. It's a word that I like to try to meditate on and try, try to be transparent before the church. You know, for there was a time in my early Christianity where I was pretty fake. I mean, I, I don't know if that's a common thing, but I wanted, to, I wanted to go to church and I didn't want people to know that I struggled. I wanted everybody to think I was uh, spiritual. And there came a time when I realized, man, this is not real. I know that I'm saved, but I'm missing out on something here because I'm fake. And so I want to be transparent before the church. And I, I open that up with, with that because what I'm about to say is awkward to me. It makes me feel strange to say it in the presence, especially of believers, actually. But here's the thing about this scripture. When he says, let not your hearts be troubled, that has been offensive to me. I am, uh, in my personality, I'm an anxious person. I worry about things that don't matter. I mean, things that, uh, the way my wife puts the eggs back in the carton, if it seems out of whack to me. Uh, you know, and sometimes I think, what is, you know, why? Why, why worry about that? Why does this bother me? Uh, and so worry and anxiety about bills and about life and about my children and their safety and their, their, the, where they are spiritually, those things weigh down heavy on me. And so when I come to this Scripture to be transparent before the church and to be transparent before the Lord... I would have to confess that in my flesh, I read this and I want to... What my heart jumps to is, how can you say that to me? How can you allow those kind of circumstances, you know, and most of the time I'm thinking of some specific things that, are up, that I'm dragging behind me like a plow. Say, Lord, how can you allow those things in my day? And then tell me, don't let your heart be troubled. And so, maybe more, I ran across while I was studying for this and, and meditating on these things, I ran across a John MacArthur quote where, uh, to the, to the well, I can't think of what the conference is called, where, they, where all the preachers gather together and they preach to each other. There you go. And, and he's, he's talking to all these preachers and he said, hey, don't study the Scripture to make a sermon. Study the Scripture to understand it. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, it just seems... That just seems rudimentary or, or fundamental, but I, I, again, to be transparent, I went back in my brain and I started to think, you know, I haven't done that consistently. I don't always do that. This case, I had to. 
this is, this is a weakness of mine. It's a struggle of mine. And so for me to try to understand this thing, because if I know in my heart what, what Jeremiah 29 says, that he wants to prosper me. If I, if I believe in my heart that he became sin, literally on the cross, he became my sin that I might become his righteousness, the greatest act of love that I could ever dream, if I believe that in my heart, then I would have to say, okay, then it's not you, Lord, that's wrong here. You're not, you're not just being cruel to me. You're not putting on me more than I can... Uh, I don't want to say it that way. You're, you're not laying in my lap something that you haven't equipped me to do. Huh? And so then... It falls back on me. I have to say, okay, Lord, there's, I'm missing something here. And so I had to spend some time in this Scripture with this thought and the Lord chasing this Scripture around in my mind. And, and that's what I want to bring this morning. We're going to do four things. First, we're going to deal with the troubled heart. I, I, I thought that that was going to be the key to understanding this. What, is, what does it mean to be troubled? It turned out it wasn't really for me. Uh, next thing we'll do is we'll go back to the beginning and we'll, we'll unfold that imperative that He gives us. And then we'll look at the remedy. Praise God, he doesn't, he doesn't just condemn me. He doesn't just point out by His Spirit where I'm failing. He gives me the remedy for that. He gives me the grace, the answer to, to respond to that. He gives me the, the opportunity for repentance. And then along the way... As we go through here, I, I want to extract some, some precepts. The Lord's been chasing that word around in my heart recently. These precepts of God. Uh, I came across a couple of scriptures that just jumped out at me. And, and I thought, well, what does that mean? Because he, he seems to, in the 19th Psalm, and I didn't bring it with me, but in the 19th Psalm, he goes through and and, and there seems to be a distinction that he makes, the psalmist, between his law and his love and his, and his precepts. And so I want to pull some, some precepts of the Lord out from here and then also some principles that would, that would apply more to us, the principles of living for Him that I want to pull out of these Scriptures and try to learn together. One of my heroes in the faith is Malcolm Ellis. As I meditated on the, knowing his precepts and, and just knowing, to me, to me the, the more I learned about it, is, is kind of an idea of, I want to know how God would respond to anything I might do or say because I know him well. I mean, I, I know if, I, if I'm in a mood... Here's an example. If I'm in a mood to fight, and I get that way sometimes, if I'm in an ornery mood and I want to pick a fight with my wife, listen, I don't have to struggle. I know what will pick a fight with her because I know her. If I want her to snuggle with me, I know what to do. I know what pleases her. If I want to aggravate my children, I know my children very well. I can make my son fuming mad just for my own entertainment at the drop of a hat. It is so easy because I know him. And so I want to 
know the Lord that way. Here's what my hero, one of my heroes, Malcolm Ellis says. Malcolm Ellis. He says, there is no pursuit more basic to human happiness and emotional stability than a right understanding of who God is. To whatever extent you are mistaken about God, to whatever extent you are wrong in what you believe God to be or how He behaves, to that extent you are in emotional and psychological peril. How many of us know somebody who is dead wrong in their theology and they believe it with every fathom of their being? Lost people believe what they believe with everything they got. There are Islamic folks and Muslim who believe everything. I mean, their their whole heart and body are poured into that belief and they could not be more wrong. And they are absolutely in peril. I mean, they are in danger like they cannot even fathom. One of the reasons that this text has been offensive to me, if we look back at chapter 12, I know I didn't read that, back at chapter 12 and and verse 27, this is the words of the Lord, says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And so I want to say, well, hold on a minute now. Lord Jesus, you can be troubled, but you tell me not to be troubled. He says it again, In 1321, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit. That word troubled carries with it a a very strong anxiety. It's it's horror. uh, I I think about that moment in Gethsemane when, when the Lord was so horrified by what He was anticipating. He was about to... I don't know know if this is the right way to say it. I don't know if this is good theology. uh, But I don't know a better way to say it. I don't know a better way to understand it. He was about to experience something new. He had never been sin before. There There was an amazing time in history when God became flesh and dwelt among us. And then He became... Sin. He had never experienced that before. He had certainly never experienced God's wrath. And so he was looking forward to that thing, and it was so horrifying to him, the the consideration that I'm going to have the wrath of the Father poured down on me, and I will experience this vileness that I have detested for all of eternity. When I consider that, well then I have to back myself up and say, well hold on a minute now. That's not what troubles me. I'm troubled over electric bills. Or or I'm troubled over, you want to see me throw a childish fit? Come around the outlaw garage and watch me round a bolt head off or break a bolt. And, and, and I'll, just, I'll just come to pieces. My theology just falls in the floor in pieces over a bolt. That's different. 
It's not the same troubled. And so, what does it mean to be troubled? Let's look back at chapter, I mean, at verse 36 right here. I'm going to go through here, and, and if you have your bulletin with you, I think you'll have these first three. A troubled heart abides in chaos. A troubled heart has forgotten what the Lord has said. And then a troubled heart, thirdly, seeks its own. If you have that and you're taking notes, uh, on number two there, scratch out the word said and, or done. It says what the Lord has done. You put a mark through done and write said. I'll tell you why later. Troubled heart abides in chaos. Look at how Peter responds to this in verse 36. Lord, where are you going? You know, these guys, it's, it, it amazes me that the Lord, you know, He's on His way to the cross. I mean, in, in just a few short hours, He's going he's gonna to be before Pilate. And, and at this moment, when the disciples really should be ministering to Him, He takes this time to set the example one more time. He washes their feet. And then he tries to warn them. He's, he's worried about them, really. That's what, that's what it boils down to, is he has compassion because he knows these guys that have been with me for these three years, or roughly, and I've taught them, and I've seen them grow, and I've loved them, and they're mine, I chose them, and their world is fixing to fall to pieces. And I know what the Scripture, I mean, he's omniscient. He already knows that the Scripture is going to be fulfilled. Every one of them is going to fall away. Every one of them is going to fail. He's fixing to foretell Peter's failure. And so he says, look, in the midst of this, don't let... You know, I'm not big on... I'm dying to say this. I'm not real big on the... the uh, oh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? These Bible translations that are like, they're super paraphrased. I mean, my, my mom gave me one one time, and I, I can't remember what it is, and I read it every once in a while. If I'm studying a scripture, I'll go in there and look at it. I think it's the message, and I hope nobody studies the message every day. I don't want to be offense to you on that deal, but, but I mean, it's like reading a, a story that, I, so I'm not a big fan of those, but, but I think as I go through here, and the Lord has, has revealed some truths to me in this, I think if I ever wrote one on this, I would say, I would say it this way. Don't let your theology fall to pieces on the ground and just stay there. The Lord is saying you're about to hit a hard time here. Remain where you are now. Don't stay there. But a troubled heart abides in chaos. Peter, and you can hear it in their voices as they say, as Peter says, where, where are you going? What's going to happen? Why are you leaving us here? The Lord has told him, I'm going to tell you the same thing I told the Jews. I'm leaving, and you can't go with me. The opposite of that, if anybody ever tells you that they know the Lord, that they're saved, that they're okay, and, and you and you question that in your mind, and you feel like you're supposed to witness to them, one of the, one of the evidences of true regeneration is a rootedness. I'll contrast that with, with Psalm 1. It says, it starts out and says, blessed is the man, and so we know from that we're fixing to get the definition. The Lord's fixing to, to define what it is to be blessed. He says, blessed is the man. And then he says, he is like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He's not immediately after that. Verse 3, he says, he's like a tree 
planted by rivers of water. And he bears fruit in season, and his leaf never, never withers, and he prospers in everything he does. I had a charismatic, I've got a charismatic friend that'll send me some stuff every once in a while. He's one of these, he's one of these faith movement guys, I guess, that, that uh, you know, speak positive things. <laughs> and he sent me a big old deal about that one time. And I started looking at that, and I thought, well, no, that's, he says I'm like a tree. And I've got some trees in my yard that look like uh, Hiroshima. <laughs> I desperately need to do some tree maintenance. And I started thinking about those trees, and I thought about, you know, he says I will bear fruit in season, like a tree that's rooted. And I'm drinking up that water, and I'm good to go. I'm going to make it to the next season, but there's a time when I'm standing there barren. And I'm just struggling through the winter time. He says he prospers in everything he does. I started thinking about a storm coming along and breaking off limbs on my trees. Because every time the wind blows, I've got a trailer load of limbs all over the place. And I think, the Lord will take a storm and break those limbs off, but then the next year, four or five new baby limbs. So he used that storm to prosper. And so it's not that uh, around every corner, the Lord is just prosper, 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 prosper. The way I understand prospering, He's prospering me the way He sees to prosper me. That's the opposite of what's going on here with the disciples. One of the things, I'll say this, that, uh, that I've started to do sitting under Brother Josh King's preaching, is I've started to look and see, okay, now which, which individual am I viewing myself? Have y'all noticed Josh does that a lot? And uh, I can see myself in this chaos, I'm, I'm afraid. Troubled heart has forgotten what the Lord has said. Back in Matthew chapter 16, and we, and we see that in... In verse 14 and verse 2, the Lord brings that up. He says, hey, if this were not the fact, if this were not the case, would I have told you? And so he's saying, remember what I said. It's, a, it's questioning God's sovereignty when I forget what He said. Because it's not necessarily that I have forgotten the words that He spoke. It's that I have forgotten in my heart the validity in those words. The weightiness of those words. The assuredness of those words. An example of that that I find in Scripture in Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 through 23 is the account where Jesus is with the disciples and He says, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Isaiah, some say you're... Uh, I can't remember even who it is that they, they mentioned. And some say you're, you're one of the prophets. And in my mind, I kind of visualize him. He's saying that to the group. And then I, I kind of, for some reason, I always visualize the Lord turning and looking Peter right in his eyes and saying, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ. Son of the living God. And you can hear the excitement in the Lord's voice. You start to see exclamation points in his, in his response to that. And he says, oh, blessed are you, Simon. Because you didn't learn that from your own self. The Father has given you that. And, and what, a, what a pride 
What a thankfulness. And, and the Lord is just so pleased with Peter. And he barely draws another breath. He barely draws another breath. And the Lord begins to tell him, I'm going to the cross. And Peter's in verse 22, it says he pulls him aside. And it literally says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, he barely, he barely got to draw a breath before he went from Thou art the Christ, this proclamation that the Lord said, I'm going to build my church on the rock of that proclamation. The Lord has given you this, and that's what I'm going to build my church on. And in a matter of a few seconds, he has the audacity. And I feel bad. I don't want you to think I'm throwing Peter under the bus. What I'm really doing is is reminding my own heart I have the same audacity that in the draw of a breath I can go from worshiping Him and confessing Him sovereign God of my salvation to no, Lord. Jesus' response to that was not as proud he said, get behind me, Satan. A troubled heart. Has forgotten what the Lord has said. And then a troubled heart seeks his own. In verse 37, I'll lay down my life for you. Let me pull out a precept of the Lord right here. This is a tough one for me. The, here's, here's the precept that I'm going to extract from these Scriptures. The Lord will drop you right smack in the middle of a struggle and leave you there for a season for His own glory. He's doing it right here. He says, I'm leaving. I'm going where you can't go. Now, there's a difference in what he says to the disciples here. And let me make this point, too. He's talking to saved, born-again believers. When the minute Judas Iscariot walked out of that room, there is a hinge point in the Gospels. We see it in all four Gospels. When Judas leaves that room at night, that is a hinge point where we no longer see a public ministry of the Lord Jesus to people who may or may not really have a true regenerated heart. More than likely not, most of them. I mean, we see those 20-some-odd thousand people that get fed, and the Lord just comes right out and says the next day, hey, you're here because I fed you all you wanted. You're not here for me. You're not here to chase after me and my righteousness. You're here for free fish and bread. But at this point right here now, for the rest of the, His ministry on earth, it's a private ministry with His chosen people. That's all that we see in Scripture. And He has dropped them off right in the middle of a bad situation. The Scriptures that I pulled out, John chapter 9, He passed a blind man. And, and listen, how, listen how His disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned? 
was it this man or was it his parents? And the Lord said, it was neither. This man has been blind since birth that my glory be shown right now. I'm fixing to show it. Now think about that. That man was blind from birth. He was a grown man, we know, because when his parents got called in, they said, hey, he's of age. He can answer for his own self. I don't know what age he was, but he was a grown man. It struggled. All we see is this little bitty glimpse, and we say, oh, what a blessing. Oh, listen, that guy lived through a whole lifetime of being blind to get to that spot. What about Lazarus in John chapter 11? They sent for him, Lord, the one you love is sick. He didn't only love Lazarus, he loved Mary and Martha. I mean, we see they were, they were in the inner circle. And the Scripture just comes right out and plainly says, okay, well, I'm going to hang out here two more days. The disciples, because of the response, the reaction, the response of the Lord, the disciples thought, well, it must not be a big deal. Oh, well, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. The Lord had to break it down and say, Lazarus is dead. But he's dead that I might raise him. He will drop me off. Now, this goes against, you know, I, I have thought about this and meditated on it because what I, what I began to see was I, I preach against the prosperity gospel. When I, when I hear it proclaimed, I think, oh, you fools. You fools! I'm going to call them names. In my arrogance, in my arrogance, I will, I will think to, to when I see that crowd, and, and I'm, man, I've got them all around me, in my family and such, and I will think that I'm more spiritual than them. I will act like I'm more spiritual than them. I have belittled them. But I find this right here creeping into my life. Like when things aren't going good, I immediately want to be removed. Lord, get me out of this. Get me out of here, Lord. This can't be right. I must have sinned and God's punishing me. I've, I've made some horrible mistakes somewhere and missed the will of God and now He's punishing me. He's not going to bless what I'm doing because back in September, I made this horrible decision and, and didn't follow His will right. I'm not living holy enough. I'm not praying long enough. I'm not studying the right things. When that goes, that goes dead 180 degrees against the gospel message. And I thought, how does, I had to go before the Lord and say, how does this, how did this creep in? Because I, I know that that stuff is not right. I know it's not true. The faith movement will tell you if, if, if it doesn't get fixed, it's because your faith's not strong enough. What about these guys right here? That was God's will. He will drop me off right in a struggle and leave me there for a season. There's a difference in, he told the disciples here, I'm leaving, he said, just like I told the Jews. Well, there's a slight difference. He and he's talking about chapter 8, 
when he told the Jews, I'm leaving and you can't go, he followed that up with, and you're going to die in your sin. Omniscient, sovereign God knew those men's hearts. Here, he says, it's only for a time. You don't understand now, but you will understand. You, I will come back and get you. You will go with me. Let's unfold this imperative very quickly. I'm running out of time. I'm not going to go till 3.30. I was just joking about that. Let's unfold this imperative because he does give this to me as an imperative. It's a, a command. I mean, the Lord... Sovereign God is telling me, do not let your heart be troubled. Let not. Let's deal with those two words first of all. This let not carries with it an understanding that He has given me authority over my heart. Remember who He's talking to. He's talking to regenerate, saved, chosen people. His disciples is who He's talking to. The eleven that remain there carries it on. Now he's talking to me as I read this. The Holy Spirit reveals this to me. I am saved. And so he tells me, let not your heart be troubled. And so there, there comes an understanding there that he has equipped me to stand against my heart. There's three voices in my heart at all times. And this really applies to lost and saved people. Anything that pops up into my heart or into my brain, whichever way you want to look at it, it's coming from one of three places. It's either coming from the Holy Spirit of God, from the enemy of my soul, or from my flesh. That's it. I mean, that's the only three places. And so when he tells me this, I don't want to steal Brother Josh's thunder and, and start... I tried not to get any Galatians stuff, but... Uh. Galatians chapter 2 says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our what? Our freedom. He has set me free. I was dead. I didn't have an option to fight against my heart when I was dead. But He has raised me to life. You know, this goes against what the world says. The world says, the heart wants what the heart wants. Huh? How many, how many broken marriages have ended in a husband saying, well, I didn't intend on that happening. I just fell in love with her. I fell in love with this new woman and I, and I fell out of love. People change. The heart wants what the heart wants. How many broken marriages have had a wife, when it was over with, say, my husband just didn't say the things that I needed to hear anymore. And then here came along this man and he said the things that I needed to hear. And I didn't intend for it to happen. But I just fell in love. I can't control my heart. The Lord says here to the believer, saints of God, I have given you authority over your heart. Let's look quickly at Psalm 42. Brother Sam read that. And, it's, and it so closely parallels this, this Scripture that it, it just intrigues me how closely they are. It says, as the, as the deer pants for the water, 
He says in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night. He says, I can remember a time when I led the throng back into your house when I worshipped you. He's in a dry, desolate place. His heart is troubled. He says, I can't even eat. I don't even have an appetite for I am just broken down and beat down. I have gone before the Lord and, and said, Lord, I am beat down and defeated. I don't know what to do here. I can't get out of this place. I don't know how to respond to this. But look at the fifth verse. In the midst of this, the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I will yet again praise Him, the God of my salvation. I'm going to extract another precept from the Lord right here. It is perfectly biblical habit to get into. It is a perfectly scriptural habit to form. It is a perfectly Christ-like discipline to put into my life to stop in my tracks and preach a sermon to my own self. That's what, this, that's what David's doing right here. He says, whoa! One of those three voices, the Holy Spirit of God, revealed... Hold on a minute. The Holy Spirit's speaking to me and there's something that's not right here. The way I'm feeling is hopeless. But I know I'm supposed to have hope. And so he stops and says, hold on there, heart. I reject that. I reject that thought because that doesn't line up with the hope that lies within me. He says, heart, I have every reason in the world to be full of joy. I was dead and He raised me to life. What else do I need? Take it all away, Lord. Take the houses and the cars and the motorcycles and the fancy lawnmowers and the cell phones. Take it all away. You've given me life. I have every reason in the world to rejoice and rejoice always. His circumstances hadn't changed. But his perception had. In the 107th Psalm, Psalm 107, the, the 107th Psalm, I read that, that quote from, from Brother Malcolm Ellis, preached the Word of God 38 years, I think he said that. Michelle and I took a weekend and went and listened to him in the big town of Bochita just a couple of weeks ago. There's about uh, 400 people in that town, I think. He said he's been preaching 38 years. That's almost as long as I've been alive. Roughly. 
I found these notes. I'm, I'm going to give him credit for these four principles because I found some old sermon notes. I was going through and just sometimes I'll just go through and just read a bunch of bunch of my old notes. And I found this old sermon notes from Malcolm Ellis preaching from the 107th Psalm. And he said, if you ever want to know who God is, if you ever want to know how he acts, how he behaves, Psalm 107 is, is devoted in its entirety to how God responds to man. I thought, wow. And so I got in there and started, started reading. Here's, I want you to see these, and, and I'm going to extract four principles for, for living in obedience to Christ. When, when, when this thing happens in my heart, when the Spirit of God draws me, and I stop my heart and say, whoa, hold on, that doesn't line up, here's, here's some of the principles that now that the Spirit is in control, He begins to flow these out of me. That's the point that I'm making. Look at, look at the 8th and ninth verse. He says, and we've got again uh, another situation where he's just destitute. These, you go through the 107th Psalm and, and, and it's just uh, different people types, different personality types. And this one here, he says he's wandering in the desert, in the land of waste. He's looking for a city to dwell in. He's looking for a home to, to, to abide in. He's looking for a place of security and he can't find it. And then in verse 8, he says, or in verse 7, he says, then they cried to the Lord in their what? In their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. And he led them by the straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love forever, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And look closely at verse 9. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And so there's some principles that I, I want to extract from that scripture very quickly. These people, one, had an appetite. They had an appetite for God, they had an appetite for personal holiness. You see them cry out to God in their trouble Save us. Bring us back. They were attractive. This, this intrigues me. It's not a question in this scripture right here. The, the general church today, and, and especially the Western church in the United States, spend all their efforts trying to make God look attractive to man. But what we have here is man destitute and he realizes I need to make myself attractive to God. He says he fills the hungry soul. Are you hungry for God? Are you thirsty for Him? I must confess... I find myself a lot of times, rather than when I'm in that struggle, and I've been in one for a while, I've been in a season of trial and test for a while, and I find myself if I'm not very, very careful, well, no matter how careful I am, I find myself like this. I, I realize, and he reveals to me, look, not only do you not want to be the oppressed one, you want to become the oppressor.
find myself praying some things, and then the, and then the Lord says, just rebukes me in my spirit. And says, what? What if the, you know what I've had to deal with lately? What if the Lord called me to pastor a church in some little country community like Bochita, and there's thirty people in that church, and that's it, and you're in a community of three or four hundred people? You're not going to grow that church in numbers. You may not ever build a new building. And what if He left me there all of my life here on this earth? Hmm. See, in my, in my weakness, in my flesh, I want to... I want to say, okay, well, here, here's what I envisioned in my mind. is Okay, well, here's what happens. Uh, uh, God puts you in a little bitty church, and, and you're faithful, and you do a good job to those people, and then He promotes you. He moves you up. You know? He says, oh, good job. I'm going to give you a promotion. I'm going to move you to uh, a little bit bigger town, a little bit bigger church. And then you do a good job, and you please Him very well, and, and you... And, you do a good job with those people and you lead some people to Christ and you teach them the doctrines of grace and they've never heard it before. And then he says, oh, good job. I'm going to promote you again. Move you up to an even bigger church. We might give you a TV show. You keep doing like this. <laughs> but the, the, the truth of the matter is that's, that's garbage. The place for me to be is where the Lord would have me. That's where contentment is. I have to, I know I'm running a little bit late, I have to finish this. Uh, assurance. He says, uh, they were also awakened. They were awakened by the Spirit. They were awakened to their position. That's what he does. He reminds me, hey, I died for you. And then they have an assurance. Assurance that God is hope, that God is eternal. The last thing as we close here, let's deal with, with the remedy. Because he says, he says, let not your heart be troubled. He doesn't say, if your heart ever if you ever experience trouble in your heart, I'm going to spank you. That's not what he says. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. He says, when, you, when I reveal to you that your theology has fallen to pieces on the floor, you don't let it remain there. You preach a sermon to yourself, and I'm not talking about pulling your own self up by your bootstraps. I'm talking about being, living a spirit-filled life. Getting back and saying, whoa, 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 I've, I'm working in my flesh here. I need you to control me. And then he goes on here and says, the remedy is believe. And I'll end with this, because the second thing that I have, and I, and I, and I thank you, Brother Josh, for this. There's two things that you've, you've made a big impact in my life. One, the way I look at the, at the men and women of the Bible, because you do, you want to you put yourself in the, in the hero spot, you know? A lot of times. I do. 
And then the second thing is, when we asked to join this church, I met with Brother Josh, and he brought me, he brought me that book. I, I don't know. He, he kind of insinuated that everybody reads that Nine Marks book. It, it, that might not be right. Maybe he just thought Michelle and I were a little sketchy and better make sure. But in that book, one of the chapters says, are you saturated in the gospel? And I had to, I had to stop. I, I read that over and over. Uh, there was a couple of paragraphs there, and I had to put the book down for a second because I was going through a season where I recognized in my life that if you focus on any one doctrine wholeheartedly and just devote yourself to one doctrine, that doctrine will become an idol, even if it's true. There's a balance in Scripture. And here is where this Scripture is saturated with the Gospel. The answer comes twofold. It comes at the end of this, group, this section of Scripture that I read, and it comes in the beginning. The first thing is, in verse 6, he says, I am the way. Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And he said, I am the way. You want to be delivered from a troubled heart? Step number one is, you've got to know the Lord. You have to be born again. When, when Nicodemus came, that, the Scripture, what it literally means is born from above. You have to be a new creature. You have to have been at the foot of the cross and recognized with a broken heart, with godly sorrow, that it was your sin that put him there. That's step one. You can't be removed from a troubled heart without that. Step two, you can't get to without step one. In this example of the washing of the feet, among other things, there's several things that we could get from there, but there's one thing is that he is talking about the renewing of our mind by the washing of the water of the Word. He tells Peter, if you don't renew yourself, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part of me. So you want to be removed from a troubled heart. You want to believe. You don't do that in your own strength. You've got to be saved. You've got to go to the Lord. You've got to get into His Word. Amen.